Welcome to episode 201 of X-Lapsed, where uh, your humble host is coming off of one of those milestone hangover things here. Uh, all that build to the, you know, 200th episode, and, uh, well, here we are. Uh, we're, you know, that's in the rear view, and we're moving on. It uh, kind of reminds me of my first ever milestone issue of Uncanny X-Men. Uh, I started collecting X-Men in the... Boy, early 290s, you know, um, right before Executioner's Song. And so, you know, you're in 292, 293, 294, and it's like, wow, we're almost at issue 300. And uh, we built this up in our heads as, a, you know, a really big deal that we were getting a hundredth issue. And, you know, we did, and it was a fine issue. But then, uh, you know, a month later, it was just issue 301. And it felt like, wow, okay, it's kind of like the day after Christmas, right? It's You had your good time, you had your celebration, and then it's, uh, well, then you uh, muddle through until the next one. So here we are, and thankfully, we're not exactly muddling through because it's Hellion's Day, and uh, we always enjoy Hellion's Day for the most part. So let's hop right into it. This is Hellion's number 11, had a July 2021 cover date. Story's called Funny Games Part 3. Kill screen. I'm guessing that's probably a reference to like those old uh, arcade games that uh, kind of just stop working when you hit a certain level. I think like something to do with the I don't know if it's binary or just whatever kind of programming language they use. Like everything kind of topped out at 255. I think. I think that's the story. Um, so like if you hit like uh, level 256 of like Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or something, it would just make the it would like, shut the machine down. It would just glitch it out, and you couldn't go any further. So I'm guessing that's an allusion to uh, maybe something that's going to happen during this issue. Written, of course, by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of Alexis Hickman. Edits, Amaro Basso, White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $4. On sale, May 5th of 2021. Now, um, let's talk about the cover right off the bat. It's a nice cover. I, I will not say anything bad about how this cover looks. Segovia just kills it here. It looks great. But it is yet another Psylocke on Psylocke image that, uh, you know, while it does fit into the story, it, it feels like it's just not the selling point I think the people at Marvel feel that it is. I, I mean, sure, do this every once in a while, but, I mean, can we go an issue of Betsy or Quanon that isn't focused on Quanon and Betsy? You know, I've got all the faith in the world in Zeb Wells. He's definitely earned every bit of goodwill that we give him here on the show. And he is just ridiculously amazing. I mean, that's uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But uh, even having said that, I, I don't want to see any more of this. I just don't. Um, so please, folks at Marvel, editorial, whatever, can we move on from this? Can we maybe, you know, not... Do this Psylocke on Psylocke stuff. Maybe put that in the same pile as Madripoor and Otherworld as, like, things that we just don't need to do for a minute. You know, give us a little bit of a break. All right, let's get into the book. We open in what appears to be the somewhat distant future. We meet an older version of Quanan who is in the process of crucifying yet another Psylocke who has come to attack her. This is apparently a daily occurrence. We do not see Quanon's daughter, and her absence isn't even addressed here. Then, Greycrow shows up, but he hasn't aged any. He says that he's heard Quanon's call before collapsing into her arms. Now, we shift a little bit later, where they're, you know, getting 
getting comfortable here. They're sitting around a fire. Quinan tells John that, uh, yeah, you know, I did call for you, but that was 50 years ago. And John's like, nah, that can't be. Can't be. It couldn't have been longer than a month. Maybe it was even yesterday. You see, time's a bit slippery here, you see. Psylocke feels that this place is hiding something. It's hiding something that uh, they're going to need to gather the rest of the team in order for them to expose and defeat. Double-page spread of roll call and cred our characters include Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Mr. Sinister, and Mastermind. Back to comics, and we're back to the outside, the real world here, where we see Mastermind trying to maintain his illusional horror show. Now, as a reminder, he is here against his will. He's working for Arcade under the threat of having his daughter murdered should he fail. Though, I mean, she is a mutant, so it's not like she'll be gone forever or even for that very long, but I suppose it's still traumatic. You know, you still think about preservation. At least some of them do. Now, he's been at this for a week and is definitely beginning to show signs of fatigue here. Now, this is evidenced by Quanan and John's illusions merging, right? They're able to travel between the, uh, the illusions. Arcade then turns his attention into the next room, where Mr. Sinister is hard at work devising the clone farm that they agreed that he would do last issue. Now, um, also last issue, you might remember that Sinister spent a lot of those pages getting teeth yanked out by Arcade, yes? Um, and so... For this entire issue, he speaks with a bit of a slur, which, while funny in a way, uh, kind of outlasts its welcome, if I'm being honest. Mastermind informs Arcade that he feels Quanon's probing, and that she is trying very, very hard to reconnect with the rest of her teammates. Arcade's response to this is to have Ms. Locke hold a pistol up to Wingard's head, also bringing up a monitor that shows his daughter, the other mastermind, or maybe it was Lady Mastermind, whichever it is, whichever it is. Uh, whoever she is, she's in great peril as well. Info page. Now, this is a letter from a Dr. Richard R.J. Briggs. He is an employee of Arcades who had been previously tasked with creating the clone farm. This uh, Briggs fella is quite reluctant to do so. Arcade has scrawled a note at the bottom of this missive ordering for Briggs to be killed and then for his uh, operatives to shift their focus toward capturing Mr. Sinister. Back in the Mindscape, where Quanon and Greycrow have managed to locate Havoc. Now his clothes are absolutely shredded, and he's wearing a chained collar. If you remember, he was, uh, he was being the S in an S&M thing with uh, Maddie not too long ago. Now he is shocked to see his teammates, and he immediately gets into some uh, TMI, or doth protest too much sort of dialogue here. He mentions that Maddie left him here as a punishment, but uh, he don't he don't need her at all. Nah, no, no, not one bit. He doesn't need her. He doesn't need Madeline. He could do whatever he wants, you know, on his own. He's good. He's good. He's good. Greg Crow kind of rolls his eyes and is like, "Yeah, sure, buddy." Gwenon suggests that they're that having the three of them together somehow has created enough gravity with which to attract the rest of their team. And I mean, just like that, bada bing, bada boom, the rest of the team show up, but not alone. You see. They bring with them the enemies they were fighting in their solo scenes last issue. Wildchild brings with him Wolverine, Sabretooth, and Romulus. Nanny and Orphan Maker bring with them those, uh, those children, those crazy children. But I don't think Empath is here. I don't see Empath. Uh, maybe he's off Quentin Quiring somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, at this point, Mastermind is really struggling to hold everything together. But uh, Quanan is definitely proving to be too strong of a mind to control. And so it gets a little wonky here. Uh, she kind of somehow trades places with one of those mojo-eyed Psylocks that came to attack her, you know. The uh, mojo-eyed Psylocke then starts fighting everybody, Hellion and otherwise. Turns out that this was a subterfuge in order to confuse Mastermind into thinking she was still in the Mindscape when, in actuality, she's escaped. Now, she bursts into the room where Mastermind is masterminding, where she is immediately attacked by Ms. Locke. Quanon slices her right in half, revealing that Locke really was just a sex robot for Arcade. Uh, good thing there is no Krakoan law about, uh, you know, kill no sex robots. Now, before Quanon can run her blade through Mastermind, uh, another shoe sort of kind of drops here. He begs her to give him just a moment to explain. And he then puts a hex on Arcade to buy themselves a little bit of time. Huh. 
Huh, wait a minute. Why couldn't he... I mean, he could have done that all along, huh? Hmm, I wonder why he didn't. Well, we only have to wonder for like another panel or two because everything is about to be made clear. But first, Mastermind tells Mr. Confirm to release his daughter under the threat of death. And so he does. And of course, Mr. Confirm is the one who's been confirming everything for Arcade over the past couple of issues. Then Mr. Sinister enters the room to spill the rest of the beans here. You see, he and Mastermind were in cahoots. Sinister wanted to use Arcade's newfangled, clone-farmed murder world as his own underground clone farm. And so, he and Mastermind got together to find a way to get this ball rolling with uh, maybe a measure of plausible deniability. Then, once it's actually up and running, they would deep-six Arcade, and Sinister would continue his work, without the Quiet Council being any the wiser. Which, I mean, you've got some of the most powerful psychics in the galaxy in the Council, so unless there's a law that we don't know about regarding, you know, reading thoughts of your fellow Quiet Council members, uh, they probably already know, right? Or stands to reason they could find out very, very easily. Well, I guess at least the Hellions, minus Quanan, would uh, think this is all genuine, right? Uh, I mean, they were all just mentally tortured, and uh, they're going to see a Sinister who was also quite tortured. So they might ask, you know, what kind of madman would go to such lengths to cover this all up, right? They're going to buy into it. Now, at this point, Mr. Confirm has released Mastermind's daughter, and again, I can't remember which one, Reagan or Martinique, is that it? One of those. Now, Daddy Mastermind has his daughter kill the fella anyway, and so she does. Huh. So she just killed a human then, didn't she? Hmm. Sinister then asks Quanon to put, uh, like a mental suggestion into the rest of the Hellions to make them think that this whole mission was a rousing success. They came, they saw, they rescued Sinister. She doesn't want to. And, I mean, it's pretty clear as to why. Uh, but Sinister still has his bargaining chip in Quanon's digital daughter, and so she begrudgingly does the thing. Worth noting, during this scene, Arcade is babbling to himself in the corner, and uh, we learn exactly why he wanted to create this clone farm in the first place. You see, he he's killed a lot of people close to him. You know, a lot of people that he's loved and cared about, he has murdered his parents, Ms. Locke, way back in the uh, Loeb and Sale Gambit and Wolverine miniseries in the mid-90s, and, uh, hey, he wants them back. I mean, that's uh, kind of heartwarming, right? He wants them back. But uh, then we find out why he wants them back. He wants them back so he could, well, kill them over and over and over again. So we almost felt bad for him, but uh, he, he snapped us back to reality pretty quick. We wrap up back on Krakoa, where the Hellions have arrived, believing that they just returned from a wildly successful outing. Uh, we still don't see Empath. Did, did he die last issue, like again, and I just forgot? I don't know. Grey Crow tells Quanon that they're heading to the lagoon to celebrate, and he invites her to come along. Eh, she ain't feeling it. She passes. She says she's tired. Mastermind is with Quanon and Sinister, and he tells them that the others don't even need to know that he's here, so... I don't know if maybe he's shielding himself from the rest. He then informs Quanon that Grey Crow has the hot pants for her, and she grabs him by the collar and threatens to run her psychic blade through his skull. Sinister smiles, saying that they're clicking like one big happy family, and he then tells Quanon that she'd be wise and probably a lot happier just to go with the flow here. We wrap up with a mostly blank quote page from Psylocke herself. Uh, she vows that there will be a day of reckoning for Sinister, and it'll come sooner then later. That's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, uh, we say Sayonara to Storm over in uh, Marauders number 20. Uh, it's going to be an issue, I think, where they're just basically reminding us that she was a member of that team in the first place, considering that uh, she didn't do a whole heck of a lot, did she? <laughs> but uh, we'll treat it as a big deal anyway. But that's a discussion for next time. Now let's talk about Hellions here. This was, uh, I mean, comes as no surprise, this was another very good issue. Though, in terms of pacing, for me, it hit this, like, weird arena, right? Um, it feels like it both had a little bit too much room to breathe, but also eh, sort of kind of rushed and maybe even truncated at the end to make sure we nip it off in time for the gala. And to be completely transparent, I might just be projecting, because I am just so over the entire concept of the gala at this point. I'm... Very tired of hearing about it, and I really can't wait for it to be in the rear view, to be completely honest here. 
I'm not a big fan of The Simpsons, and I'm not a big fan of uh, Simpsons references, but the Hellfire Gala has turned into the uh, the poochie of uh, of X stories of late. It's like if there's a lull in conversation, let's talk the gala. If we're talking about anything else, let's talk about the gala. If someone's dying, let's let's talk about the gala. If if someone stubs stubs their toe, let's you know somehow reference the gala. I've had a little too much of it, so uh, yeah. So I might just be projecting a little bit. That's Probably it, but uh, we're just a. Uh, we'll move on from that. I just wanted to preface with that so uh, it could temper uh, anything uh, sort of kind of negative that I might say in the uh, coming episodes. So, what do we got here? What do we got here? We basically have a uh, Quanan sort of tiptoeing between being an effective leader for the Hellions and also being beholden to Mister Sinister due to her, you know, his uh digital daughtering, right? Um, I like this. I really do like this. I can't believe, and I've said this before, I can't believe that something that came out of the Fallen Angels mini is uh, is actually inspiring such well-told stories here, an actual human-feeling, you know, conflict, internal struggles with characters here. I thought that, uh, I actually thought we were going to never hear about that Apoth and uh, daughter stuff ever again, so... It's, a, it's like a double surprise here. First, I'm surprised that it's here, and second, I'm surprised that it's being done and executed as well as it is. Uh, now, Quinan, she has a loyalty to her team here, and there's definitely feelings brewing between her and Grey Crow. So I like the fact that we started with the two of them. You know, they found their way together first. It makes the most sense. Uh, Havoc, we don't know what's going on with Havoc yet. Um, we've heard that there's, there's some sort of a... Not so much a presence, but there's a uh, defect, a, a some something in his mind that is uh, rendering him less productive and uh, more fitting for the for the Hellions roster. So it doesn't make it wouldn't have made sense for him to find Quanon first. Uh, Wild Child is you know <laughs> Wild Child. Maybe if he was a uh, maybe if he was attracted you know pheromonally, he could have found Quanon first. Uh, Nanny and the Orphan Maker they got their own thing going on. Empath. I don't know where Empath is. Uh, he does die most of the time. He is kind of the Quentin Choir of this team, so maybe he died during that uh, during that dinner scene uh, in his mind. I really don't know. I thought for a second uh, somebody from his uh, his little uh, illusion was in the big you know double page spread, as there was a uh, young looking fella. Wielding knives, <laughs> maybe they were uh, steak knives uh, for whatever dinner they were having over in uh, Empath's illusion. But uh, I think that was just one of those kids, those weird kids from the Nanny and Orphan Maker deal there. So yeah, Grey Crow, he's able to find his way to Quanon. They have themselves, I don't know, not not so much a uh, deep conversation, but uh, there is definitely a feeling that there is a uh, magnetism between the two. Which I'm definitely looking forward to seeing play out if, in fact, they allow it to. Because I don't think we've ever seen Quinan happy yet. You know, ever since, uh, well, forever. <laughs> She's always been very dour, very uh, suspect, very just unpleasant. Uh, I mean, I, I think unpleasant might have been the word I used the most during our Fallen Angels coverage here. Because Quinan was just very, very unpersonable, very unpleasant to uh, to follow. Didn't give us much reason to root for her um, because while she was very much a victim and was, you know, definitely the protagonist of that story, she was just uh, not fun. She was just not a fun character to follow. Here, if she does become, you know, romantically entangled with John, I think that could lead to, you know, a, a different prism <laughs> through which to view Quanan and. I think if there's any character who needs fleshing out, uh, Quanan is definitely up there. Uh, she's somehow made it from, you know, the the F list to... I'd say she's in the solid B list of characters now. And she did, she you know, she made this climb up the rungs of relevance without a whole lot of fleshing out. So I think if we can flesh her out a bit here, maybe see a different side of her, it'll be, uh, it'll be to her benefit, and it'll be to this book's benefit as well. I mean... This is still, you know, my favorite book of the line at this point, but, I mean, if, if, that doesn't mean it can't get better, right? And uh, I've got all the faith in the creative team here to uh, take this to the next level. Um, let's talk a little bit about Mastermind and Sinister's plan here. Um, 
I mentioned during the synopsis that it seems odd for anyone to think that they can pull a fast one on the Quiet Council because you got Xavier, you've got uh, you've got Emma Frost there, you've got a lot of powerful minds, right? So it's hard for me to fully buy into the idea that anything is going on that they're not aware of, or at least not suspicious of. And Xavier, I mean, we can speak to his, you know, morality for, you know, till the cows come home here, but I think, relatively speaking, since Hoxpox, he's been presented as kind of a, kind of stand-up. I mean, of course, he's still doing things that, uh, that are serving his benefit, or and things that are going under the under the surface, literally, <laughs> of Krakoa. But I think that he will uh, stand by the the laws of Krakoa, the rules of Krakoa, and wouldn't, or would at least try not to invade mines without uh, without permission or without, uh, I guess, a a mental search warrant of sorts here, where Emma Frost will uh, skim you know thoughts off the top of anyone who let her. I think. Uh, I mean, it's been hinted that she, you know, has at least a suspicion that uh, Maura McTaggart's still alive, right? From that issue of uh, Marauders we just covered a little while back. So, I mean, I don't know if Sinister is keeping any secrets. Is, is I'm taking the scenic route here, but I don't know that Sinister's secrets are as well kept as he might think here. And he has been operating a clone farm for a while, right? We know that he has black market clones here. Uh, Betsy Braddock is in one of those bodies as we speak. I've got to assume that uh, him taking over Arcade's operation might be leading to the Chimeras. And I know I've talked about the Chimeras a lot. Or I've Actually, I haven't much talked about them, but I've always just guessed that, oh, the Chimeras are coming. They're coming now. This is where they're coming. This is where we're going to meet them. And I'm thinking that maybe this will be where he... Uh, gets a little bit more um, Dr. Moreau, right? Just uh, really playing with all these uh, strands of DNA here and doing uh, his weird and wacky experiments. So that works. You know, that really does work. I do like that Sinister like played along for as long as he did here, allowing his teeth to get pulled and all that stuff. He really committed to the bit, you know? And, I mean, there are a lot of Sinisters out there. Who's to say this is even, you know, Sinister Prime or if this is just another one? You know, kind of like the one that went to Otherworld during Exitens with the Hellions uh, and were, you know, destroyed by Tarn the Uncaring. But I suppose we'll find out more when, uh, well, when these books stop being hijacked by the Hellfire Gala. And maybe we can get some forward momentum in, uh, in each of our books again. But... Again, I mean, well done. Very well done story here. A nice three-parter, you know. This is not a not a six-parter, which I'm always a fan when they're not six parts long. Though I suppose it's a, the storylines are five parts now because they're giving us less pages for the same price in the trade paperbacks now. So at least it wasn't five issues long, I guess. The art was fantastic. It feels like things are kind of sort of coming to a head here. You gotta wonder how many times uh, Quanon is gonna let Sinister play his one and only trump card here, right? It's like, do this for me, or I, you know, just just delete your digital daughter. It's like, well, how many things does she have to do before she is just done? And she realizes that, okay, the daughter is never coming back because Sinister is always gonna keep that dangling over her head, and so she'll have to. She'll have to make a decision. You know, she's going to either have to take Sinister down, expose Sinister, or somehow find a way to, you know, take control of Apoth and her digital daughter somehow. Either way, I'm happy to see that this stuff is all starting to bubble to the surface. And um, yet another very strong outing for this book. I think that's uh, probably all I got to say about this issue. Let's head into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters to discuss, including a day and date one. But we're going to start with Damien talking about Juggernaut number 5. He says, For a long time, I genuinely thought they were never going to add the last issue of Juggernaut onto Marvel Unlimited. And they didn't wait to release it until I'm struggling to find time for podcasts. It feels like I'm a terrible fan of X-Lapse writing a review for episode 149 when I can see that the most recently released episode is 199. Never worry about that. Never worry about that. The show ain't going anywhere. (laughs) The show will always be around, and I will always be looking forward to your messages, no matter what issue we're discussing here. So definitely don't don't worry about it. It's uh, we're always here. We're always here for each other. Uh, Damien continues. The problem with the long delay between Juggernaut four and five appearing on Unlimited is that it could only be a disappointment. This is a shame because it's not a bad series. 
Fabian Niciesa is always a good writer, and he's able to deftly add characterization throughout. He makes me care about Cain Marco and manages to synthesize the previous versions of him. This is no simple task, as the Juggernaut is one of the most inconsistent characters in the Marvel Universe. Any Juggernaut story is always colored by my headcanon that the relationship between Juggernaut and Black Tom was a gay relationship. Since I first heard that fan theory, it felt right to me. The idea that the animosity between Charles and Kane started because Charles read Kane's mind and discovered his secret shame works better with a gay character. Nonetheless, I love the idea of Juggernaut gathering a team of misfits. Hopefully this is successful enough for Nisiesa to continue his story. And you know, growing up, I think a lot of us had that uh, idea that uh, Kane and Tom were in a relationship. Um, mostly because I didn't know much about them, and every time we saw them together, they had this, uh, they had a relationship not unlike a married couple, you know, where they they kind of needled at each other, but they cared about each other, they were always by each other's side here, they were basically a tag team, you know, um, around the time I started reading these things, where you didn't see one without the other, you know? It wasn't like, here's just a Juggernaut story, or here's a Black Tom story, it was just... Here's Juggernaut and Black Tom. And I want to say the first time I saw them was in the first arc of X-Force. Or the, yeah, I think it was the first arc of X-Force, or maybe the second arc, the first actual arc of, of X-Force here, where uh, we had the sabotage uh, two-parter with uh, the adjectiveless Spider-Man that led to Todd McFarlane quitting and leaving Marvel because he wanted to run a sword through Juggernaut's eye, and Marvel said, uh, well... Maybe do that a little less gorily and uh, we'll be fine. But uh, I also had those same thoughts about Juggernaut and Black Tom here. And I think even, and I apologize for invoking this name, but uh, I think Chuck Austin played with this idea too. But considering the fact that it was Chuck Austin, I think he was doing it to poke fun at them. Which, uh, I mean, pretty wrongheaded and uh, certainly didn't age well. But uh, I think that informed a lot of people's perception of their relationship. And you're, you're spot on about the, uh, the fact that, you know, if you delay something, especially the final part of a story, that'll usually result in, uh, I mean, at best, disappointment, and at worst, maybe a bit of uh, dis- disdain and resentment. I always think back to um, me and Reggie's time covering the uh, DC Young Animal books. Me and Reggie, huge Doom Patrol fans. Uh, We used to talk about Doom Patrol all the time. We wanted to do so many Doom Patrol-related projects because it's a uh, franchise that just spoke to us, you know? We loved, like, every iteration, minus John Burns, which uh, I think is is not an uncommon (laughs) or novel stance to take, but huge Doom Patrol fans. And when Young Animal came and Gerard Way uh, launched his, uh, his take on the Doom Patrol there, we read the first few issues, and we loved it. We loved it. Um, I believe Doom Patrol issue 3 was one of Reggie's only ever 10 out of 10 books. And I, I always joke about 10 out of 10 books here as being, you know, bait. You know, g- g- give me a retweet, creator. I gave you a 10 out of 10. But uh, Reggie was very, very stingy with his 10 out of 10s here because he, unlike a lot of reviewers, realized the gravity. I mean, and of course, we're, we're talking relatively, I mean... Comic reviews don't amount to a uh, hill of beans in the real world, but in our little niche, you know, a 10 out of 10 review means something, or at least it should. And issue 3 got a very rare 10 out of 10 from Reggie. But then Gerard Way got distracted by, uh, I don't know, something shiny, or maybe a Netflix series he was working on, or maybe a lunchbox that he was uh, designing for Hot Topic stores. And Doom Patrol stopped coming out. You know, we would go... Anywhere from three to six to seven to eight months between issues of that Doom Patrol. And at that point, it was like, I don't care how good it is. You know, we could have gotten a masterpiece. But after eight months, it was only ever going to be a letdown because it's like you had so much time. And of course, you know, speaking about this sort of a phenomenon, I have to bring up the the wrong-headed Mark Wade quote uh, about... Well, it's not a quote so much as a paraphrasing, because I don't have the quote in front of me, but he mentioned something like, you know, who cares if these books are late because they're going to be collected, and that's when, the, yeah, that's when people will care. People will care when it's a whole story, and they can go to a Barnes & Noble or wherever, an Amazon, and order this entire story, get it, read it, like it, hate it, whatever. That's where the, that's where the, the rubber meets the road here, which, 
of course, isn't wrong. It's wrong-headed because it totally dismisses us stupid people who buy these books every single week. But, I mean, all that to say, and again, I'm on the scenic route here, I agree with you. <laughs> it was only ever going to be something of a letdown after, uh, after such a long wait. Uh, Damien continues, I can't talk about this comic without praising Ron Garney. I've always enjoyed his work, and he's definitely getting better and better with age. His work is so spontaneous and deals equally well with big action sequences as quiet character moments. And yeah, I mean, Ron Garney has always been a very strong creator, and here it's so weird because I love old Garney, and then I look at this here, and it doesn't even look like Garney, but I love it anyway. And it's just such a... Uh, well, I think you hit it on the head. It's it's very spontaneous, and it's really, really good. Uh, Damien continues. It's funny to me that such a big deal is made of the inability for non-mutants to live on Krakoa. There are so many examples of exceptions to this rule. I don't feel like this is an editorial oversight, as it's so prominent. They must want us to know that Xavier personally doesn't want him there, although that doesn't explain Black Tom parroting the mutants-only line. Weird. Yeah, that's where I kind of had my disconnect as well, because uh stands to reason that Xavier might not want Kane there, right? He might want him at arm's length, where he can kind of keep an eye on him, because of course he can, because he's Xavier, uh, but doesn't necessarily want him in the fold, right? But the disconnect comes when, you know, uh, Juggernaut says, like, I wish I can come with you, and Black Tom just says, mutants only, which is weird, right? I mean... He doesn't try to sympathize with him. He's not like, yeah, man, it sucks, but, you know, this is the way it is. He just flat out says mutants only. It's kind of strange. That's where I thought maybe there was a little bit of an oversight there, where the rule was the rule was the rule, and there were zero exceptions, despite the fact that there there are several. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of weird. Damien wraps up with anyway, until Quicksand becomes a Rocks Tube millionaire through sandblasting videos, make mine x-lapsed. And, you know, that reminds me, we haven't seen, uh, what's-her-face, uh, D-Cell. We haven't seen D-Cell since this last issue. You know, she is on Krakoa, we know that much, but, uh, yeah, she hasn't even made her debut as X-Men Wallpaper yet. You know, maybe, maybe one of these days we can hold out hope that she will be in the background of a scene somewhere. But thank you so much for writing in, Damien. And again, don't worry about, uh, falling behind on the show. I mean, it's always gonna be here, and I always, always look forward to hearing from you. So please continue writing in when you, uh, when you find the time. I really, really appreciate it. Next up, the day and date, uh, email here from Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number 11, the one we just talked about. Andrew says... I know that Show Don't Tell has been a critique of some of these books, but I'm going to bet that you were glad that we were just told about the decades-long battle Quinan fought against Nightmare Betsy and were spared actually seeing it. Jokes aside, I thought this was a cool and attention-grabbing way to start the book. And at this point, I totally buy into old Lady Quinan being just as badass as she ever was. And you're right. Um, could you imagine if we got a whole issue of... Uh, of, uh, you know, Mojo Betsy's coming in to fight Quinan over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I think uh, Tell Don't Show was the right way to go with this one. And yeah, Old Lady Quinan is just as surly, just as powerful, just as, you know, badass as she ever was there. It was really good. Andrew continues. When I was 10, I had a hamster that I named Arcade, but I was not allowed to keep the cardboard sign I made for his tube maze proclaiming it to be Arcade's murder world. <laughs> I was a weird kid. My point is, I've always liked Arcade. He's such a goofy character, except for the fact that he gets his pleasure from murdering people in outlandish ways. In this arc, he is terrifyingly psychotic and such a smug a-hole that you can't help but enjoy when Sinister's plan is revealed. Another great old villain, well used by Zeb Wells. Absolutely, absolutely. And Arcade is a villain that I think um, a lot of creators kind of struggle with. Sometimes writers lean a little bit too far into the camp of Arcade. Um, sometimes they lean a little too far into the sort of kind of jokerness of Arcade. And it's rare when we get something as well-rounded as this Arcade, at least in current years here. It's, it was really well done. He's scary, right? He's crazy. He's entertaining. Um, we get to see some of his uh, some of his odd uh, quirks with his you know sex robot, which I mean mi mileage may vary on the fact that Arcade has 
a sex robot, but it does, you know, it does speak to his inability to meaningfully connect with real people because he just wants to kill everybody. And I mean, he did kill Ms. Locke back in the, uh, what was that miniseries called? Victims? Was it Victims? The one with the, those really kind of not so great hologram covers, the Wolverine and Gambit uh, miniseries. And uh, we found out here, and we might have found out before, but he killed his own parents, so it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Andrew continues. There was a point in this issue where I felt really bad for Mastermind. Poor guy, I thought. He's a victim here, too. I felt sorry for him and his daughter. Well, I have to admit that I did not see the twist of the sinister Mastermind plan coming at all. And I greatly enjoyed it, and the explanation all the more for not seeing it. I was just grinning as I read Sinister and Mastermind explaining themselves and laughing at myself. Of course it was all a con. In hindsight, it makes so much sense, but they even fooled me. By the end, when the two of them are laughing good-naturedly about how evil they are, I couldn't help but congratulate them. I was immensely satisfied after finishing the issue. I'm really excited to see where all this Sinister plot goes. I totally agree, and... uh, to me, this is just another example of how well uh, Wells uh, gets the uh, sassy, sinister character. Because, you know, the old stoic sinister would never be like this, right? He was always just uh, a lot more serious. Uh, and here, you know, veering into a little bit of camp, a little bit of sass here, we can see him kind of uh, enjoying this uh, you know, a plan coming together with someone else. And just, uh, like you said, you're cackling about how evil they are. It's... Really, really good stuff. And definitely can't wait to see where it goes here. If uh, if it is headed for the chimeras, uh, hey, it's about time, right? Andrew continues. That said, I would like future issues to put some more focus on the rest of the team. Havoc was wasted in this arc, and Empath has been a glorified extra in all but a couple of issues. And he's not even in this issue. Did he do the QQ and die last-ish? That's what I'm saying. As much as I do like what we've been getting with the focus on Quanon and Grey Crow and Sinister, the rest of the team deserves the spotlight as well. And yeah, yeah, the uh, rest of the team was kind of put into the uh, back burner this time out. We did get a little bit of characterization for them here. We got a little bit more on the relationship between Nanny and Orphan Maker uh, last issue, where Nanny's surrounded by these children and Orphan Maker's kind of uh, depressed, and then he gets his own nannies and... You know, we, we are getting a bit of depth there, just uh, it was kind of backburnered, you know, it's just a bubbling subplot. Uh, Havoc being very submissive to Madeline Pryor, we did get a few, you know, pages of that, but uh, certainly not as fleshed out as the rest of the book here. Wild Child with his alpha tendencies or alpha desires, I suppose. I do have faith that we're going to get um, more here. Uh, like uh, Like we've been saying about some of these less traditional books out there. They're somehow shockingly the most traditional uh, in Claremontian terms, right? Books like Hellions, books like X Factor here, they're just, uh, they're wildly off the wall, but at their heart, and they do have heart, they are, uh, they're very Claremontian in the way that they build. You know, we are getting, right now the focus is on Quanon and Grey Crow and Sinister and their, their weird triumvirate at the top tier of Hellionsdom, right? But... We do have these things bubbling in the background that'll hopefully, if this book manages to survive, will uh, will come to the fore, and maybe we will get a. Uh, I mean, this havoc thing might be bubbling along to get us to Inferno. Of course, we have some idea what Inferno is going to be all about, and uh, that it's probably not going to be a carbon copy or even a uh, homage to the original in all but name, right? But, I mean, you never know. There might be a Madeline Pryor element to it. Uh, Wild Child and his alphaness, you know that's going to be building into a uh, weird little uh, contentious thing with Grey Crow and Quanon. And I'm definitely looking forward to the Nanny and the Orphan Maker stuff because we know that Nanny has that little, uh, that little baby right bot. So I have faith that if this book survives, these things will get addressed. So fingers crossed... That it does. (laughs) Andrew continues. I have a dark sense of humor, so the lone info page this issue really amused me. The one-two of a sincere letter and then the callous kill order from Arcade made me laugh. But it is a good use of the info page gimmick to show us more of how terrifyingly psychotic Arcade is. The end scene was also fun, with the team laughing and reminiscing about their victory over Arcade. 
It's funny in a chilling sort of way, especially when Sinister tells Quanan how good it is that everyone's happy and getting along and that she should just get on board. Well, it's time for me to heap a little bit more praise onto Zeb Wells here. Uh, it's very rare where he wastes an info page. The info pages that we've gotten from Hellions have all been have all been good. They've been exactly what I feel like an info page should be. It's uh, you know, it's the salt and pepper, right? It's the flavoring that helps to helps to enrich the story rather than replacing elements of a story or telling us stuff that they couldn't fit into the story or just filling in like backlog that they forgot to tell us about the story. Wells has always done it in a way where we're getting these elements added that uh, that help the story, and it never really feels like you're wasting your time by reading them, where some of these books, yeah, it's definitely a waste of time. It's a way to make a five-minute read into an eight-minute read with very, very dense and uh, dry uh, recitation of data in these things. Uh, another thing about Wells here, um, you know, I'm not big on the mostly blank quote pages here, but in Hellions, they've actually worked. I still don't like that we're spending an entire page on them, but here, it works. So the one we wrap up with here, with uh, with Quanan saying, you know, there there will be a uh, reckoning for Sinister sooner than later. It's a great way to leave us off. It lets us know that uh, things aren't quite as settled as Sinister might think that uh, that it is. And the ending scene with Sinister telling her, you know, just be happy, enjoy what we have, uh, be part of this family, just be carefree. Um, that was fun. That was very fun because it shows both sort of an aloofness to Sinister here, where, I mean, just a minute before, he was talking about how, uh, you know, he's got the digital daughter and uh, play ball or else. And then it's just like, eh, have fun. Have fun. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. And I don't think that would have worked with the stoic Sinister. So sassy Sinister, again, gets some points from me here. Andrew continues. When I finished this issue, I said to myself, Self, now this is comics. I just love this series, though I can understand if someone finds it a little too dark, or maybe that the cast doesn't hold any interest for them. I just hope there's enough of us who enjoy it and buy it that it avoids being cancelled like Cable and X-Factor. I was very upset when I learned X-Factor was being cancelled. On today's third Runaways episode, I think you mentioned that the original plan was for most of these books to be cancelled after a year or so. I guess breaking up the Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks into yearly phases... I don't necessarily hate that idea if we could get a good rotation of interesting books and stories. Who knows if that's completely out the window. It's just a hard pill to swallow when a good book like X-Factor is canned, but friggin' Excalibur is still going strong. And yeah, I I don't remember where I read that uh, about the uh, the year yearly seasons of the Hox, Pox, Doc, Sox, Rocks era where... Our launch books were only going to get, you know, 10 to 12 issues, be canceled, and then there'd be a new rotation of books coming in, whether they were going to be new volumes of the existing books or something altogether different, I really don't know. So, I mean, Fallen Angels may have always led to Hellions, and, and I, I do feel it, it did here as well. I mean, that's that's even how I file my Hellions books here. I file them with the, the Fallen Angels things. I consider that to be like the prequel to this series because so many of the elements are uh, are present and being expanded on in the Hellion series. So yeah, I don't know if that is completely out the window. Um, I don't know. I mean, we have an idea of what the sales are. We just don't know what they are relative to what Marvel considers to be a successful book. All we have is the is the number of where they fall in the top 300. We don't know how many books they shipped. We don't know if they're healthier than they were a year ago. We don't know if they're far less healthy than they were a year ago. So it's hard for us to even theorize that some of these books will be sticking around or why some of these books are sticking around while some of them are not. Like, we don't know if these are creative reasons, if they're financial reasons, a combination of the two, neither, a different reason altogether. Uh, this book was always meant to be 11 issues instead of ongoing. I mean, it's hard to tell. But I'm never a fan of... Of canceling books and relaunching them uh, It's just part of my damage here I like having long-running books You know, I come from that time Where, you know, when I started collecting these books Like I said at the start of this episode uh, All those minutes ago Uncanny X-Men was up to, you know Issue 294 or something like that And I liked that I was collecting something That had roots all the way Back to the Silver Age Back to 1963 It made me feel like I was Collecting history, where now, I mean, who could even say? <laughs> I mean, right now it's funny. Um, this is a 
kind of a tangent here, but I was going through a uh, a quarter bin just yesterday, and I was just digging around, seeing if I could find anything. I am on a hunt for something that will be relevant to the show uh, as a Sunday special uh, that I'm going to be working on once uh, Generation X lapsed wraps up in, uh, well, just about a week or so. So I'm digging through, and I'm trying to find these books, and I'm coming across these Wolverine books from the Marvel Now era, you know? And, well, the Marvel Now era Wolverine was a, like, a 10-issue or 12-issue thing. It was canceled and then restarted and did another 12-issue thing. They didn't change the creative team. They didn't change the logo. They didn't change anything. And I know I'm missing a couple of issues from one of those volumes, but I couldn't tell you which one because I've bought the wrong ones so many times here. And I mean, I've been collecting comics for 30-odd years. So I'm picking up doubles of books that I already have just because I don't know which ones are which because they're just so similar to one another. I mean, the art is the same, the prices are the same, the logos are the same, the stupid red bar that says Marvel Now is the same. It's pretty ridiculous. And I think... Like, the last four issues of both volumes have to do with Wolverine dying. So they're both very similarly titled. So, you know, it's I think about collecting history, and then I think about stuff like that. And if someone like me can't figure this out, then then Lord help. <laughs> Any, anybody who accidentally wanders into a comic shop with a $5 bill in their pocket and wants to buy an issue of Wolverine. Because, uh, boy, it's uh, who knows what they're going to get. Anyway, Andrew wraps up with... Until Nanny decides to take care of Wild Child's primal urges, (laughs) make mine X-lapsed. I don't even know what the science behind that would be. I really don't. Um, I'm not sure I want to see it either. I don't. I don't think I want to find that one out. We'll let the. uh, We'll let that one just lie. (laughs) But thank you so much for writing in, Andrew, and uh, talking about this wonderful issue of uh, of Hellions here. Now, we do know from the solicits that this will survive the Hellfire Gala. We will at least get an issue or two after the Hellfire Gala wraps up. So, fingers crossed that uh, that they don't pull the plug on this one, and at least until uh, Wells can bring it to the ending that he wanted and maybe address all of the, uh, all of the wonderful subplots that he has uh, peppered throughout this series to this point. I mean, I can't believe we're in the double digits of, uh, of Hellion's let alone the fact that it's still going. So fingers crossed that we keep that up. But uh, thanks again for writing in here, and uh, that'll do it for the mailbag, but it is a Monday episode. So let's take a look at some of the books that are coming out, both on Marvel Unlimited, that are related to the show, as well as in stores this Wednesday. Now, on Unlimited, we have one X book that we covered, just one, and it's Hellions number 10. Now, we covered that back in episode 175. There's another X-book, which we didn't cover and we won't cover because it has nothing to do with this era. That's Demon Days X-Men number one. Uh, That one is on Marvel Unlimited, so if you were curious about it and want to read it for, you know, just for the price of your Marvel Unlimited subscription, hey, it's there for you as uh, as of today. And hey, if you do read it and discover that it is something we should discuss on the show, hey, let me know, and we will we'll try to fit it in, and I will try to... It's funny, um... Demon Days is one of those books that, like, they, Marvel promoted really, really hard, right? And I'm pretty sure it's, like, up to its third or fourth printing, despite the fact that there isn't a comic book store in the Phoenix metropolitan area that doesn't have at least 30 of these things uh, weighing down their shelves. It's ridiculous how many of these things I see in the stores. And I remember when I passed it up initially, I was like, oh, man, maybe I should pick that up just in case I won't be able to find it. And... Yeah, that won't be a problem. I mean, this thing, this thing might, they might have printed more of these than they did X Men number one uh, back in 1991. There are just so damn many of these Demon Days books. Anyway, <laughs> we have another couple of books that we have discussed on the show. They're not uh, X Men books, but they are X related. One is Power Pack number four. Now, we did a combo episode on Power Pack four and five since uh, Wolverine shows up in the last third of Power Pack number four. And that was something we covered in episode 191. And uh, in retrospect, I'm glad that we crammed both of those into one episode because I think that might be the least listened to episode of X-Lapsed ever. (laughs) People just did not care about the pack. And that's unfortunate because it was a fun little story, but nobody nobody wanted it. Uh, At least from, you know, the X-Lapsed listener uh, point of view here, nobody wanted that one. 
Now, the other book that came out on Marvel Unlimited this week is Runaways number 34. Now, again, another Wolverine appearance, of course. And we discussed that one back in episode 176. So those are the four books on Marvel Unlimited. Now, this week on shelves, we have three books. Children of the Atom number four, Excalibur number 21, and X-Men number 21, the final issue of the fifth volume there. So uh, they are... At least two of those are Hellfire Gala related. I think Children of the Atom is tangentially so. I don't know that it'll actually be branded as a Hellfire Gala book, but I do know in the solicits it mentions that the gala is going on. So I guess we'll have to wait until Wednesday to see, or I probably could just uh, go look it up <laughs> online somewhere. But uh, I've I've gone on for too long as it is today, so uh, we will look that up on my own time, and then I'll report back uh, maybe next episode if I remember. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody would like to write in and uh, share any thoughts about anything going on, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail, 623-396-JERK. You can find uh, blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join us uh, for some conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie Comics commentary needs, including those uh, young animal uh, gatherums there where we really got down on Doom Patrol, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere that the internet aggregates noise. And uh, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and ask them to do the same. It would really, really help me out and uh, would mean the world to me as well. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd spend a little bit of your day with me today while I talked about Hellions and a bunch of other things. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.